Bibles with me this morning, turn there to Hebrews chapter 10, um, verse 31. Uh, We went over this passage last week, but I think that sometimes we brush over what we read last week, and sometimes I go over it too much, but I want to go over what we went last week because it leads into chapter 11, which is known as, in the Bible, the Hall of Faith. And so if you think about a trophy room, think about a place where if your kids have played sports or maybe you were a bowler in the past or you know, whatever it might be, if you were involved in something where you could earn a reward or a trophy, um, this is God's trophy room. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, you're seeing a trophy room full of grace-filled, faithful lives to God that though they died, they were living for the hope that was beyond their life. And that, I believe, is the joy that was set before Jesus when he was on the cross, knowing that these people that had lived for this promise that he had made to them to redeem all of humankind and, and also to redeem all of the world and, and, just, and basically this future hope that he was providing for, um, we see these individuals that he used to proclaim it. And so in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, last week we looked at these verses and it says, um, I say 31, let's see, yeah. He says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, then you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, for he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, or that word is to waste, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So he says this, uh, I believe, is an important part. In verse 34, he says that they accepted hardship in the past. When they were living solely for the hope that they had in Christ, these Jewish Christians, they they accepted hardship as if it was the will of God. Now, I'm with most people. I, I, don't, I, I don't do this joyfully. I, I accept hardship as a way of life, but the reality is I don't always see it as from the hand of God. I go, this is somebody else getting in the way. How could God ever allow hardship into my life? And then I read chapter one of, cha- of the book of James, and it says, count it all joy when you experience various trials for the trying of your, the trying of your patience, uh, excuse me, the trying of your faith produces patience. That that faith that's not tested isn't actually faith. It's 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 not all actually proven to be faith. So God sometimes, if need be, allows trials to prove what we really believe or whether we don't. He's not proving it to Himself. He's proving it to us. We need to know whether or not we're actually in the faith. And for some of us, that's hard because we made a profession years ago, and yet God allows trials to come into our lives, and then we prove that we actually aren't living by faith, but we're living by sight or feelings. And so God, by His grace, allows hard things to happen in our lives to show that we're not actually trusting in Him, we're trusting in circumstances. And so he says here in this passage that they knew, they, they were willing to accept hardship in the past. They knew there was a better ahead. They were looking past the circumstances. Faith is something that helps us walk through life. It doesn't just get us out of life. It doesn't just take us out of the circumstances. So he says, don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away your confidence because there's a reward promised for those who patiently endure. The righteous of God will not just be saved by faith, and we all know that. We cannot be saved by works. 
We cannot be saved by our own worthiness. We can only be saved by faith in the Son of God that what he said was true. We know that, right? But here's the deal. God didn't call us to be saved by faith and then just to go on and live as we always did. He said there, quoting the book of Habakkuk, that says the just shall live by faith. Unfaith, or the lack of faith, sin, brings forth death. But trusting God by faith brings forth life. Not just life everlasting, but life here on earth. It redeems every area of our life. So then he goes on to say we are not of those who turn back from God. Instead, we are the faithful who will be saved. Now, wait a minute. It says we will be saved. I thought I was already saved. Well, you are. But you will be saved. You will be delivered is the idea. That we will be delivered through death into eternal life. And we're not there yet. And so endurance until that time is needed to, number one, do God's will. As a Christian, your number one goal in life, your number one priority ought to be to do God's will. Not my will, but yours be done. That's what our, the captain of our salvation said. Not my will, Father, even though he was the Son of God, but yours be done. And then we, as we follow him, we need endurance to do the same thing, to do God's will. And doing God's will is what leads to obtaining what God has promised us, the promises of God. You've heard the song, Leaning on the Everlasting Arm, Standing on the Promises of God. We're, we're standing on them knowing that we haven't received them yet, and yet our hope is that what God said will be fulfilled. So he says, not only is endurance needed, but patient endurance. And, and as Christians, we cannot buck the responsibility or even the reality that God wants to produce in us patience. Romans chapter 5 says that God's producing in us patience. And patience builds hope. And hope builds character. Excuse me, I did, got those out of order. Patience builds character and character produces hope. And hope, our hope does not disappoint because it was shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit when we received Jesus. And so we need patience in, in patient endurance. So what exactly, what exactly is faith? Well, chapter 11, verse 1 through 3 says that. He says there, faith is the substance of things hoped for, and it's the evidence of things not seen. For by faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. The elders are just those who have gone before us and trusted God. He says in verse 3, By faith we understand that the worlds were made, framed, by the word of God, so that the things which we see were not made of things which can be seen or are visible. So back to our question, what is faith? Well, he says here that faith is the substance or the reality of things that we hope for. Faith is the evidence of things that we cannot see. And so, with that being said, an example would be in verse 3, where faith is seen because the world was framed, this seen world that you and I live in, we understand by the word of God that it was created and framed and fashioned by God himself. And yet, we can't see God. So we struggle with that. And the atheist says, well, there can't be a God because I can't see him. And if I can't see something, it doesn't exist. And yet, we can see wind? Can we see wind? No, we can't see wind. We can see what it does. And when there's a big bunch of dust and, and barbed wire and trees and whatever else in a tornado, can we see the wind? Still no, but we can see the effect of the wind. We can see the things that the wind is moving. And so while the world says, I can't see God, therefore he must not exist, what the world can see is you and I. And when we are caught up in the whirlwind of God, they cannot see God still, but they can see his effect on our lives and the way that we live. So with that being said, in verse 6, um, 
in the first part, he goes on to say, without faith, it's actually impossible to please God. For we who come to God must believe that God is, meaning that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently or earnestly seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We cannot please God by trusting in our own understanding. We have to believe what he said, and we have to walk in it or do it. Those who approach God, uh, the second part of verse 6, must do so by faith. If we are to approach God, we have to do it based on faith. It's not always something that we feel is making a difference. But when we approach God, it has to be done by faith. And those who would be rewarded by God also must obtain the reward by faith. So I ask you, not what is faith, we've unpacked that a little bit, hopefully, but what does faith look like? What does faith look like? I don't know about you guys, but I've oftentimes thought this question. What does faith look like? How, where's a place that I can go to see what faith looks like? And if we want to see what a certain car looks like, if we want to see what a certain animal looks like, um, what do we do? We Google it, right? We live in the day and age where we don't have to not know anything in our minds. I, I forget what show I was watching, but uh, I heard a guy say, he said, uh, there was a day and age, and he said, you can tell your kids this, there was a day and age where if you were sitting around with a group of friends and all of a sudden there was a question that you all had, you would just have to go on not knowing until you learned it. You couldn't instantaneously just talk to Alexa or Google or whoever else and just put it in the internet and find out. You would just have to spend time not knowing something. And heaven forbid we would be ignorant of any minute, trivial, or non-trivial detail, right? How many of us like to not know stuff? How many of us struggle saying, I don't know? I do. I'm an engineer. I'm paid to know. If I don't know, they start questioning me. But my last job that I got that I'm still working at, people find it refreshing when I look at them and go, I don't know. Especially the guys that are doing what I fill out paperwork for them to do. If I go out to the plant floor and I go talk to a guy in the machine shop or in the grind shop, and they say, hey, how can you put this there? I go, I look at them, and I say, I didn't know what else to put. And at that point, they're disarmed, because they were getting ready to hack away at me. Stinking engineers, just calling stuff out. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't have to say that. I tell them up front, I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't grind tools. <laughs> I don't use machines. I get it. When I worked at the gas company, I was the same. I was raised that you just always say you know what you're talking about even when you don't. That was never, like, said that way. It, it was just always like, well, you got to at least look like you know what you're talking about. Well, why? Says who? I, and, and, and my dad actually said one time, he said, uh, and this is going to say the opposite, he said the smartest person I ever knew told me how dumb he was. And at first I was like, well, that's offensive. But it's true. Smart people are constantly teachable. You teachers in here know what I'm talking about. You're lifelong learners. If you don't continue learning, you can no longer teach, right? If, if you show up to class and they say, hey, you got to use these Chromebooks, and you've never used one before, you lose your job because you're expected to learn how to use those. And so for the rest of us, maybe we're not approached with that daily, but we need to be lifelong learners. And so what does faith look like? We need to learn what faith looks like. And verse 2 says to me that it looks like a person's life. What we prioritize, how we live, is a testimony, a witness to the existence and the reality of God. When we are blown around by the Spirit of God, and we actually stop white-knuckling our lives, and I know that many of us do this because I do it, we white-knuckle our lives and say, this is what life looks like, and this is all I'm doing. And then God says, well, I want to do something different. So when you're ready to let go, I'll be here waiting for you because I've got some things that I want you to be about. And at that point, he blows on our lives. We go through this chaotic feeling like us, like we're in a tornado, and he makes non-chaos out of it. He makes serenity, the opposite of chaos, 
and he uses it to produce and move mountains and to, to make things that are not take place. And so faith looks like a person's life that is blown around by the, the, the wind of God. And at the same time, this word testimony or witness is actually the same word that we get for martyr. Now, when you think of martyr, most of you are probably thinking someone that has been killed for their faith. But that's not actually what it means. That's, now, that is something that happens as a result of someone being a martyr, or you've heard it used like, oh, you're going to be a martyr. You know, somebody that's going forth for a cause, and they just, this is my cross to bear, and it's, and it's just like a hobby horse or it's a soapbox. But it, the idea here is that we are all martyrs. We are all witnesses. We are all those who give a testimony for what God's done in our lives by the way that we live. So in chapter 12, verse 1 of this same book, he's going to say that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The word martyr is used for witnesses. And so if that is the case, this cloud of witnesses he's getting ready to describe in chapter 11 is all for our learning. And if you turn with me to Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul's already kind of written about this before. Romans 15, verse 4. If, you, if you've ever wondered why we have the Old Testament at all as New Testament believers, Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says this, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and the comfort of the Scripture, might have hope. So we get to look, we get the benefit of this historic list of people that trusted Yahweh. We see them hearing from God, them responding to God, and Him doing these things that could not be explainable by anything other than God worked in their lives. And so Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to get several examples of faith. God revealed Himself to people. Those people responded to His revelation or His revealing their faith revealed God to their generation, and it saved them and those who believe their testimony. So it's what's good for the goose is good for the gander. What's good for us as we trust God by faith is also good for those who will hear our testimony. So patience and endurance is needed for faith. And so we get to our first mention of one of the people in faith. And so I want to point out that he says, Faith is needed to understand that the worlds were framed, verse 3, by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So the creation itself is something that takes faith. I don't know about you guys, but before I became a born-again believer and went to church every time the doors were open, uh, I thought that faith was a cop-out. I went to a church where I, when I walked in the doors, I thought, okay, turn off logic leave it at the door, I'm going to go in, I'm going to sing some songs, I'm going to hear some poems, I'm going to hear some information, and then la, 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 everything in life is fine, and I'm going to go home, and I'm going to go back to reality. And that's how I saw it. I went to church with my mom, and the things that I was learning there didn't seem relevant to the rest of life. They just didn't. But what this scripture says is that we, by faith, we understand. Have you ever thought about that? It takes faith to understand that sounds reasonable and one of the first scriptures that stuck out to me and was in isaiah chapter one many of you have heard me say this before but in isaiah chapter one it says isaiah writes come let us reason together reason though our sins were as scarlet jesus has made us white as snow he doesn't say jesus but that's what he's speaking about that he's foretelling that that god's going to send a savior to make us white as snow Though our sins were scarlet, in that day, the Jewish audience by Isaiah, there was nobody with red clothing. Nobody wore red. It was expensive. But the only time you saw red on clothing, you know what it was? It was blood. And you couldn't wash it. There was no shouting it out. There was no bleach. That it, you couldn't, it was a stain you could not remove. So to them, when they said, when Isaiah says, come let us reason together, though our sins are as scarlet, they've stained our clothes, they cannot be cleaned. He has made us 
white as snow. And every mom was going, how is that possible? You know, what kind of witchcraft is this? You know, th- this is, it, it was something that was impossible without faith to believe. And so here we have in chapter 11, verse 4, he says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. This man who is dead is still speaking by his testimony. And so let's look at Genesis chapter 4, where we pick up on this conflict. And it's one of the the first conflicts in the Bible, so it's interesting to me that it's one of the first examples of faith. You don't need faith to get through everything being fine, but when it comes to conflict, it takes faith. So in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife. She conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry at this, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at your door, and it desire, its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, It came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am am I my brother's keeper? And, And so here we have this story of this ancient conflict. These are descendants of Adam and Eve. Cain offers the fruit of his labor, and so does Abel. So what's the difference? Well, Abel offered an animal sacrifice Cain offered produce from the land. Now, whether you realize it or not, God had already shown them, not through the law, but he had shown them what it takes to cover sin. If you remember with me in Genesis, what happened is Adam and Eve ate the fruit. When they ate the fruit, God told them that they would die on that day. Did they die? No, but they were separated from life with God. So God comes out and he said, where are you? Just like he asked Cain, where's Abel? Not because he didn't know, but because he was asking them to confess. And they said, we're ashamed because we're naked. And he said, what do you mean? Who told you you were naked? Well, their eyes had been opened because they rebelled against God. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they understood they were ashamed because they knew that they were naked. And so what they did was they took leaves and they covered themselves, plants. But God gave them animal skins. An animal had to die for their nakedness to be covered. So we see the first evidence, this is the first mention of animal sacrifice to deal with sin. And so now Cain and Abel know this story. No doubt they know this story. They're aware what it takes to cover sin. And yet Cain and Abel both offer the fruit of their labor. Abel offered an animal, an animal sacrificed the fat, and Cain said, I'm not offering that. I'm going to offer what I have to bring. But all throughout Scripture, there's only been one way to deal with sin, and God has shown them that. So we have two options. We can reject God's prescribed way to approach him, or we can accept it. Abel accepted it by faith. Cain did not. He offered the work of his hands. How many people today still say, I'm not going to trust in somebody else to provide my sacrifice. I'll give God what I think he needs, what I think, what I can offer him, and then he'll, offer, he'll, he'll accept me based on what I have to give him. But there's only one way to be saved. And this was a precursor to Christ. And so God prescribed it. Fig leaves used by Adam and Eve, not acceptable. Animal skins provided by God, a covering. And then Abel's killed by Cain because... He was obedient. 
He was hated for being accepted by God. Christians today, still hated by the world for being accepted by God. Cain killed Abel because of anger and jealousy. He could have repented and approached God the prescribed way. God gave him the opportunity to confess. He did not. He wanted his own way. So in Matthew chapter 23, we have Jesus' commentary on this. Matthew 23, 29. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, your actors or your hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and you adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. He says, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. <clears throat> that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you also murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So essentially, he's calling these Pharisees, these religious leaders, He's basically calling them out as being just like Cain. You think that you're religious. You're, Cain made an offering, by the way. He wasn't a pagan. He came to offer to God. But he killed the one whose sacrifice was accepted because his wasn't. And, and God's not interested in our outward obedience. He's interested in our heart. And what we find out about Cain is that Cain was actually inwardly disobedient, even though he was making a sacrificial offering and so Abel's story is about a faith that worships out of a pure heart so we have faith of Abel and then verse 5 through 6 we have the faith of the next one <clears throat> Enoch now Enoch is an interesting character because we really have very little about him in scripture but Enoch verse 5 it says by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So in Genesis chapter 5, verse 21 we have just a few verses on the life of Enoch. Uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 21. It says, Enoch lived 65 years, and he begot a son, Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So if you're just reading through this quickly, you may even miss the fact that he walked with God, and then he was not. It's seemingly just kind of just put in there. For anybody who's going to read it quickly, they're going to miss that blessing. What the New Testament teaches is that he walked with God, and then God took him. And so why? Why would he just take him? And why do we have so little about Enoch? I believe it's because Enoch is an example of faith that just walked. How many, now, <laughs> I know this, so we have, we have lots of sports where people do amazing things, right? Uh, we got the X Games now. I mean, basketball's cool, and for a while there on ESPN, they had jump ball. It was not jump ball, what was it? They had trampolines, and they would do these flips and then dunk, and then I guess it was too dangerous, so they got rid of it. But they would run across the court, they'd jump on it, and I'm just picturing somebody nailing their face on the rim and the backboard. But these X Games, they've got guys like jumping, out of, jumping off of, of cliffs or off of mountains. They've got these suits that help them glide like a flying squirrel. 
and then they fly into the side of a helicopter, which seems a little dangerous. Well, maybe it was an airplane. Helicopter seems like if you're off by a degree, like not only do you kill yourself in the, in the prop, but then the, the helicopter goes, to, nobody's going to agree to that. But I don't think I would agree to any of these things. But it's pretty amazing. And I was going to say, nobody ever made a sport out of walking, but that's not true. We've even done that. We've got power walking. My mom used to work out. She would power walk, and none of us would want to be seen with her. You know, she'd be like, I'm, I'm doing my deal. And I'm like, I'll be over here. You know, and she's, I got a new attitude. You know, got her tape going. She's listening to, you know. But that said, nobody, for the most part, I don't know about too many people that are impressed with walking. But, but walking can be impressive because it, it takes faith to do it. No one's going to high-five you for it. Nobody's going to give you a trophy for it, unless you're in that small niche group. And um, it's not really that spectacular. My two-year-old does it. He walks. Now he falls, and he walks into door frames, and he's not, you know, graceful like Lucy, but walking's not that impressive to people. But I would submit to you that God was impressed with Enoch's walk. Not that he walked, but who he walked with. It says, Enoch walked with God. I don't know about you guys, but if there's one thing that could be said about me, that my epitaph could be, I don't want it to be that I was a pastor. I don't want it to be that I was a family man. I want it to be that I walked with God and that I was not. Because all that, that's all that matters in life. The rest of my life can be centered around that and I can live an amazing life by doing that. And so... One of his sons, he named Methuselah. So even during his only 365 years, by the way. Now, there's a whole other discussion that goes along the longevity of life in the Old Testament before the flood. There were things scientifically that changed about our atmosphere. But what we know about Enoch is that he walked with God and he had children. He multiplied. And one of his son's names was Methuselah. And Methuselah lived to be the oldest recorded man in the Bible, 969 years. Methuselah is an interesting character because what I had heard in the past was that by faith he named him Methuselah because after him comes the judgment, is what it means. But another meaning of Methuselah, if you break down the word, is actually, um, I have it in there, a wine bottle of eight times the standard size. Now, I told this to my wife, and she was like, well, that's weird. But it makes sense, because in the Bible, wine is actually a picture, not of drunkenness, but of joy. At the wedding feast of the Lamb, we're going to have wine. I believe it's going to be the best wine that exists, and we're going to enjoy it together. But wine is a picture of life, because it takes a vineyard that produces grapes that have to be treaded out, and we have this beautiful flourish of flavors and I believe that wine is a picture of joy and abundant life. So here we have Methuselah, lives 969 years. I would submit to you his name means he's going to live longer than anybody else. He's going to have eight times the life of most people. You can take that or leave it. It's not something I'm going to die on. But here we have Enoch. He walked and had close fellowship with God. Another 300 years after Methuselah was born, it, same testimony, implying that the previous 65 were no different. And then one day he disappears because God takes him. Walking with God kept Enoch pure in the wicked days that led up to the flood. And, and the wickedness in the days leading up to the flood was apparently so bad that God decided to destroy all of humanity. I don't know about you, but that makes me think that it was pretty stinking bad. Because there's been many times since then that he's not destroyed us. And we're a pretty wicked generation. But God's judgment of the world is what took place after Enoch's life. Walking with God kept him pure. And so um, <clears throat> after he dies, judgment comes. And, and, and if you submit to the theory that his name means after he dies, judgment comes, I would submit to you that that shows the patience of God. That God kept him alive longer than any other human being, waiting patiently for mankind to repent and to turn back to him. 
But if you turn with me to Jude chapter 1, hey Jude, right before Revelation, I say Jude chapter 1, there's really only one chapter. In verse 14, we have another mention of him in Scripture. Verse 14 says this, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and this is important to say this because you read in Genesis the descendants of Adam and Eve, there's actually another Enoch in there that's not this one. So he says specifically, the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also. He's speaking about false teachers. He says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which godly sinners have spoken against him. So these teachers that speak unwell of Jesus, they speak as though he was a heretic. But I want to point out about Enoch that though we don't have letters and letters that he wrote, though we don't really know that much about him other than he walked with God and then he was not, he is an example of faith that walked. So where do we get this quote from Enoch? Well, some biblical scholars have found that there's actually an apocryphal book that's called the Book of Enoch. You might have heard of a movie that was supposedly made about it or closely tied to it. I don't know. I haven't seen it. But the idea is that there was actually prophecies written down in the Book of Enoch. Now, for whatever reason, it didn't seem to tie in with the, local, with the biblical narrative, so it never made the canon of Scripture. But there are books out there that mention Enoch other than this one. So my point is, we have Abel, who is a picture of faith, um, who's a picture of faith that worships, we have Enoch, which is a picture of faith that walked. And then finally, in verse 7, I'll try in the next five minutes to talk about Noah. It says, By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. And so in Genesis chapter 5, we have God speaking to Noah. And God speaks to Noah and he tells him to do something. But before we get there, I want to point out in Genesis chapter 6, I think unfortunately when we read storybook Bibles and we read about Old Testament saints and even in New Testament saints' lives, we very quickly look over their first introduction to God and we assume that their whole life was them just being faithful, perfect in every way. Um, I think about Peter. I was reading about him this week. His first interaction with Jesus was that he was on the Sea of Galilee. He was a fisherman. Jesus, needing a place to speak from, spoke to Peter and said, hey, why don't you take your boat, go out a little bit on the water. So Jesus gets on the boat with him. He goes out a little bit and he preaches. And then after he gets done preaching, he says, I want you to take your boat out to the middle of the lake. I want you to cast your nets on, the, on, on whatever side of the boat. And Peter, having been up all night fishing, looks at Jesus and says, uh, Master, I've been out on, the ocean, or out on the Sea of Galilee all night. I've been fishing all night. We didn't catch a thing. I, I know you've said to do this, and I'm going to do it, but I want to point out that I haven't caught any fish all night. So he does what Jesus tells him. He casts his net into the lake, and he pulls it up, and they bring up two loads of fish so much that the boat almost sinks. And Peter stops in his tracks and he says, Lord, depart from me, I'm a wicked man. He recognized that there was something holy about this man that had told him to, to go fishing, to do what he'd already been doing all night. He had already accepted Jesus onto his boat. Just, hey, we're kind of surface level friends. I'll take you on the boat, whatever. But when Jesus reveals that he's something more than just a friend, at that point, his response, Peter's response, is to recoil and say, God, I'm unholy. Why are you even around me? And he says, don't be afraid, Peter. Don't be afraid. Because I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Those are grace-filled words. And I say that because, I don't know about you guys, but if you've never had that moment of feeling unworthy of God, 
that I don't think you've ever really experienced him. Because that should humble us when God reveals himself and his power to us. And so if you're here this morning, and if you've ever felt like I'm not really worthy of God's time, that nobody that has true biblical faith has ever felt, not felt like that. So in the book of Genesis, we have Noah. And God told him to build a big boat. And I've got a picture of the scale model that they have in Kentucky. We went and saw it. I didn't take a picture. I'm not thinking about looking at the boat. I'm thinking, this will be a great slide. You know, but I, I put the picture up there for you because it was huge. Three decks made out of wood. Uh, we walked in it. Apparently they had fire suppression systems in the original two. <laughs> Just, it's a joke. They didn't have any of that. They had elevators. They had caged animals. It was great. They had ideas of how they could have possibly gotten rid of the poop. I had never considered that that would even be an issue. I was thinking about the size of the animals, not the size of the animal stuff. You know, but then we have, so we have Noah, and in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, it says, um, it says, he called his name Noah, saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands, because the ground which the Lord has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years, had sons and daughters, so all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died, and Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These are the three nations that will come from Noah. But then go a little further to Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, and says, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. He walked with God, another picture of a person of faith, just like Enoch. And um, Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence, so God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, verse 13, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, Make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and outside with pitch. But what I wanted to point out, I didn't actually read. Where was it? I can't find it, but that's okay. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you what it said. That God found favor, excuse me, Noah found favor with the Lord in his generations. Favor means grace, and grace can never be earned. It wasn't because Noah was perfect in his generation. It was because despite Noah, God gave him favor. It wasn't earned favor. It was grace. So, here we find ourselves. Noah being a man who is saved by faith. Noah being a man in his generation that was not perfect, but God chose to use him. It says there in that, those verses, Noah did everything the Lord commanded him. If there could be one thing said about you, would it be this? That, insert your name, I'm going to insert mine, Mike did everything the Lord commanded him. If I can just simply do what God tells me to do, things are going to happen. The walls are going to shake. People's lives are going to change. For you, insert your name in that sentence. Did everything the Lord commanded him or her. So, what happened is that Noah did what God told him to do. He saved himself from the flood of judgment of God that he was going to flood the whole earth. Who else was saved by his faith? His family. There's a lot of things that you can do your, for your family. You can provide food for the table. You can make sure they get a good education. You can make sure that they have it better than you. But the one thing that you are commanded to do by God is to do everything the Lord commands you. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And if you will do that, you will not only save yourself, but you'll save those who hear you. And your family lives with you every day. If you can be faithful to what God's given you to do, specifically you, not them. Don't wait for them to be obedient. You be obedient. And you're going to spur on faith in them. It'll be like a wildfire. All it takes is one match, one tiny flame. You hit the right fuel, and before you know it, 
what happens, it affects everybody around you. So in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaks about Noah. Matthew 24. There's other places where the same instance is recorded, but I'm going to read Matthew 24, verse 37. He says there, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the return of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, look at this, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, or the idea is be sober and watchful. For you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the household had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. I believe that in the days of Noah, it wasn't like everybody was killing each other, but everybody was rebelling against God, and it caused strife between mankind. And God got so fed up with it that he said, I'm going to judge. So he told Noah to build this boat. And if you look at this picture, you can see the ark for miles. For miles. And so just the fact that the ark is being built is a testimony to the fact that there's something that they're going to need saved from. They had never seen rain. It had never rained. Scientists, godly scientists have done studies. The earth used to be different. There was a water canopy. There wasn't the rain cycle that we see now. There was a constant mist that came out of the soil. There wasn't as much UV rays. Many people believe that's why they live so long. But as a result of that, judgment was coming. The ark was just a billboard for the fact that God was going to save Noah, but everybody thought Noah was crazy. Jesus is a testimony to the fact that the world will be judged. Our sins were laid upon him, so we don't have to be. And so just his existence infuriates non-believers because they don't believe they need to be saved from anything. I'm fine. I don't need the ark. I don't need Jesus to save me from destruction. But the reality is, the fact that he exists, the fact that he was killed, the fact that he rose from the dead, is all a testimony to the fact that we need to get on the boat. Interesting fact about the boat, there was only one door. There was only one way to enter their salvation, through the door. And what it says, not that Noah closed the door when they got on. It says that all the animals got on, Noah and his family walked on, and when it was finally waited, he took a hundred years to build the boat. A hundred years of God's patience. All they had to do was get on the boat. So when they got on and nobody else got on and the flood was getting ready to happen, God closed the boat and said, no more. You had your chance. And then he flooded the whole world. God is not willing that any should perish. But all would have the opportunity at everlasting life. That starts now. And so we, in the same way, have this opportunity. But we have this message. We're like Noah. Noah had a faith that worked. And so in 2 Peter, as we close, chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says this. did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. He delivered the righteous, speaking of Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from the day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust 
under the punishment of the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according, not according to the flesh, excuse me, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and the despised authority. They're presumptuous, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak of e- evil of dignitaries. And so my point is that just as in the days of Noah, we are preachers of righteousness. We preach by our lives. We preach by our words. And we preach just by faith, by living according to his precepts. And so may we have that faith. May we look at these examples and be taught ourselves to have faith that worships, faith that walks, and faith that works. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your direction in the lives of these Old Testament saints. We need you to inspire us. We need you to be the whirlwind that tosses us through this life in a serene and yet effective way that moves the people around us. If our faith isn't moving us, then I don't believe that it's faith. So Father, give us faith that is not white-knuckled, but is actually open-handed and allows, give us faith that allows you to work in our lives. Not necessarily the ways that we want you to, but may we give you full reign so that we can be preachers of righteousness by the way that we live, by what we're excited about, by the way that we talk, and Father, by the way that we lead. Our generation can only be affected by you, and we are the way that you've chosen to lead this generation. And so, Father, would you stir us up in ways that only you can, and may we glorify you in all the ways. Help us to be those that would do everything God tells us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.